Hello, everybody, and welcome to this new session of MEM podcast. I'm here with Dr. Nicola Wilson, and we're going to speak about Parkinson's disease. Hello, Nicola. Hi. So what is Parkinson's disease? How do we diagnose it? And what type of features we should be looking for when assessing a patient? Okay. So I think the first thing to say is that Parkinson's is one of the commonest neurodegenerative conditions that you're likely to come across. It affects about 160 per 100,000 of the population. But in the older population, patients above 80, it affects about 2% of those patients. It's caused by a degeneration of dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra of the basal ganglia. So how is it diagnosed? It's a, a diagnosis that's mainly clinically based. So the definition of Parkinson's centres around the, the clinical triad of three features, and they are bradykinesia, tremor and rigidity. So if we look at those in a bit more detail, bradykinesia is defined as slowness of movement plus a decrement in the amplitude or speed of a repetitive movement. So often we can examine this by asking patients to rapidly open and close both hands. Next, if we look at rigidity, so that's what we call a velocity-dependent resistance. So sometimes we refer to this as lead pipe rigidity to passive movement around the major joints. So the easiest joint to look at this is in the upper limbs. Sometimes we might see that if it's present in combination of tremor, we might get what we define as cogwheel rigidity. The final sort of cardinal feature is tremor, and this is a rest tremor. Typically, it's defined as a pill rolling tremor, and it's observed in a fully resting limb. And this is suppressed when initiating movement. And this is important to consider when we think about differential diagnosis, such as a benign central tremor. Typically, symptoms are unilateral at onset, but with disease progression, they then typically do become bilateral. There are other supporting features which we should look for, and these include hypomimia, so reduced facial expression, hypophonia, so a quiet voice, micrographia, which is this very small sort of spider-like handwriting, and also an impaired sense of smell and salivary drooling. As I said, the diagnosis of Parkinson's is predominantly a clinical diagnosis. You may sometimes wish to consider imaging such as a CT brain if other diagnoses such as multiple infarcts or hydrocephalus are on your list of di differential diagnoses. Response to pharmacological treatment of Parkinson's is important as well. However, we don't use trials of medication as a um, sort of diagnostic criteria because of the lack of sensitivity and specificity. There is also functional imaging, so what we call a DAT scan, which can be performed if we're considering a non-Parkinsonian syndrome something such as drug-induced Parkinsonism versus a Parkinsonian syndrome. Whilst we often think of Parkinson's in terms of its motor features, there are a number of non-motor features of Parkinson's disease, and it's important that we also consider these when assessing a, a patient. So it's really important to approach patients in a holistic manner. There's a Parkinson's UK website, which has a really nice form, which patients can complete themselves, or you can use to prompt you to remind you of the, the non-motor features of Parkinson's. Very often you may see patients presenting to hospital and particular symptoms which might relate to an acute hospital admission in patients with Parkinson's include problems with constipation, swallowing difficulties and aspiration pneumonia, autonomic dysfunction with postural hypotension and falls and also cognitive problems such as hallucinations. We need to remember that both dementia and depression are much more common in patients with Parkinson's disease. So moving on to think about differential diagnoses, and I'm very often asked to go and see patients on the ward who've been admitted, and there's a question as to whether or not this patient may have Parkinson's. 
One of the commonest differentials we need to think about is a central tremor. This is usually bilateral and it tends to affect the hands or the arms, head, neck or chin, and can also affect the voice with a tremulous voice. This is much more apparent when patients perform an action or holding their hands in the outstretched position. And this is in contrast to patients with Parkinson's who have a rest tremor, which is actually improves on movement. There's a number of lists of other differential diagnoses that we need to consider. So when we're thinking about tremor, we need to think about things like hypothyroidism, um, anxiety, or I've even been asked to see a patient who was having rigors and someone was concerned about their tremor being Parkinsonism. We also need to think about metabolic impairments, so patients with renal or hepatic failure, cerebellar disease, and then there's a group of what we call Parkinson's plus syndromes. A lot of these syndromes may initially present with Parkinsonism, and it's only later on in their clinical course that other features might become apparent that allow us to differentiate these from pure idiopathic Parkinson's disease. The first one to think about is multisystem atrophy. This commonly presents with Parkinsonism, but patients will also have features of dysautonomia, they might have cerebellar signs, and they might have pyramidal signs. So by dysautonomia, we think about significant postural hypotension. These patients will often present with a number of falls, and they may not have much response to dopaminergic therapy. Next, Parkinson's plus syndrome we think about is corticobasal degeneration. So this is a progressive asymmetric movement disorder, which is characterised by a combination of akinesia and extreme rigidity. They may also have features of focal myoclonus and apraxia, what's described as an alien limb phenomenon. Cognitive impairment is also quite common in patients with corticobasal degeneration. And the features of their cognitive impairment are particularly those around executive dysfunction, aphasia, apraxia and behavioural change. But they have a relatively preserved episodic memory. So these features, in combination with a lack of response to dopaminergic therapy, might point them to a, a diagnosis of corticobasal degeneration. The next Parkinson's plus syndrome we think about is progressive supranuclear palsy. So the key feature for this is restricted upgaze on examination. Again, these patients might present with typically Parkinsonian syndromes, and it's only later on in the diagnosis that the restricted upgaze will become apparent. Finally, we think about dementia with Lewy bodies, and sometimes I get asked what's the difference between Parkinson's dementia and possible side effects of medications such as confusion and hallucinations and dementia with Lewy body. So patients who develop cognitive impairment either before their signs of Parkinsonism or within a year of being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease would fit under the criteria of dementia with Lewy body. Patients that have had Parkinsonism for over a year and then develop cognitive impairment, that would be more consistent with a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease-related dementia. So then moving on, we think about treatment of Parkinson's disease. Very often um, patients may be on very complex drug regimes, but initially on diagnosis, some patients might not be started on any medication if their symptoms aren't affecting their daily life and they're able to mobilise as much as they need to. Really, treatment is focused around dopamine, either replacing it or making the body use the dopamine that it has in a more efficient and effective way. So the first option, help the, our neurons use the dopamine that they have. So this can be with uh, monoamine oxidase B inhibitors, which inhibit the breakdown of dopamine. And again, this might be a monotherapy that's used before introduction of other therapies. And common medications in this group are sagiline, selegiline and safenamide, which is a much newer drug on the market. 
Commonly, the next step that we would move on to is replacing dopamine. And so this is commonly dopa, or the trade name is Madapar, or Cocaroldopa, which is trade name Cinemet. Levodopa is normally combined with a decarboxylase inhibitor to try and prevent the peripheral breakdown of levodopa to dopamine so that it actually reaches the brain where it needs to have its clinical effect. Another option is to trick the brain into thinking that it has dopamine. So these are dopamine agonists such as apomorphine, pramipexol, reprinerol and reticotine. We can then think about trying to block the enzyme that breaks down levodopa. So some medications might be COMPT inhibitors, so entacopone or apicopone. And we can then also think about more sort of third or progressive therapies such as blocking glutamate, such as amantadine, to try and reduce dyskinesia or anticholinergic medications such as procyclidine, which can help to reduce tremor. Okay. And what should we look out for when we assess an inpatient with Parkinson's disease? So I think the first thing is to think about why is that patient come in. And whilst a patient may have come in with a fall or a fracture, Parkinson's may be the underlying reason why they've had that fall. I think we need to be aware that some patients coming in may be unable to take their medication by their usual route, either because they're nil by mouth or they're not able to swallow or they're unable to absorb the medication. Most hospitals have their own inpatient guidelines and you should be familiar with your local policy. The first thing to think about is, is it appropriate to place a nasogastric tube and will it be tolerated? If this is the case, then patients' um, normal medications such as cobenaldopa or cocaraldopa can be converted to a dispersible form and that can be given by the nasogastric tube. If it's not appropriate for an NG tube, then we can think about changing their normal medication to the equivalent dose of reticotine, which can then be given transdermally. It's important to remember patients that have dementia or delirium these patients may be more likely to have side effects such as hallucinations or reduced level of consciousness or confusion. So it might be appropriate to start the reticotine patch at a lower dose and so slowly titrate it up if it's tolerated. There are more advanced therapies that can be considered such as subcutaneous apomorphine, either as PRN injections or as a pump form. This isn't something that should be started unless it's done by a, a Parkinson specialist. I think also to remember, hospitals can be very dangerous places for patients with Parkinson's. And you may come across the Get It On Time campaign. In our hospital, patients that come in with Parkinson's in A&E, they have a, a yellow sticker so that everyone's aware that they get their medication at the right time and at the right dose. We sometimes don't see the potential complications of patients missing their, diet, their Parkinson's medication, but it can lead to impaired swallowing, increased pain, reduced mobility, which can increase the risk of falls and fractures. In some cases, it can actually lead to an akinetic crisis, which can be potentially fatal. So I think patients attending A&E should be identified. They need these time-critical medications, and you should be aware of how to access these out of hours. Most emergency drugs cupboards should have Parkinson's medication or we should be able to contact the on-call pharmacist to, to access these. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. That was a really good talk. And thank you so much. Thank okay. you.